0: Welcome everyone. Um, we're glad you're here. Um, we are going to, I realized I was reminded that I'm a terrible friend. I forgot to announce Dan's daughter being born last week. Uh, this is awful. It's terrible. I completely forgot. Um, so um, Penny was born two weeks ago. Mom and daughter are great. Dan's here. Jenny will be back soon. Uh, they're, you know, they're happy and they're healthy. Um, so Dan, we're glad you're with us. Um, we're More babies. Um, it's awesome. Um, more to come. Lord willing. So we're excited. We're, we're looking forward to meeting Penny here in, in a few weeks. All right. Take out your Bibles. Mark chapter 12. Turn to page 848 if you're looking in your Pew Bibles. We're going to be in Mark 12 verses 18 through 27. Last week we had a whole lot of fun talking about taxes and politics, right? Everyone's everyone's favorite topics of conversation. It was it was brutal to have to do my taxes right after preaching that sermon, right? It was awful. Um, couldn't cut the corners. Um, but it's all right. We, we, we had to talk about them because that was the topic um, with which the Pharisees and the Herodians attempted to trap Jesus. Well, it obviously didn't work. So their political question failed. Well, now a third group this morning is going to come and try and discredit Jesus with a theological question. All right, Jesus has just so upset Everyone, right? He's, just, he's upset the system that everybody wants him dead. You know, we saw that the Herodians were kind of like the secular liberals. right? They were like a political party. They weren't um, religious at all. They were like the atheists today. The Pharisees are like the hyper, hardcore, conservative religious guys. They were like modern-day fundamentalists. Well, our our third group this morning, the Sadducees, would be like the religious liberals, right? They would parallel kind of the mainline liberal Protestant churches today, and Jesus is going to offend them as well. But their question, though ridiculous as we're about to see, that question still raises one of these fundamental issues that we all must wrestle with and that we all must have an answer for, right? You just, you can't ignore this one. All right, here it is. What happens after I die? Is there life after death? If there is or, or if there isn't, how should that affect how I live now? All right, this is this is one of the most basic, most important questions, yet somehow one that people mostly ignore. But you cannot ignore it forever. At some point, you will be struck with the reality that you are going to die. Right? So you've got to confront it and you've got to face it. So last week taxes, this week death. Right? It's like good old Ben Franklin said. Right? In this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. Right? That's that's pretty solid theology right there. That's what we're talking about. Last week was taxes. This week is death, and your death is certain. Right? What are you going to do about it? Have you ever heard of Have you ever heard of TED talks? Has anyone ever heard of those? I like these things. No, I'm a nerd. Um, all right. These TED talks are basically like there's really smart people in particular areas. They come and they give like a 15-minute really condensed short talk on some subject of expertise. They're really interesting on technology or entertainment, all these kind of really interesting um, topics. Um, you can go you can just Google it and check it out. Well, recently, I watched one that um, was by an English philosopher whose name is Stephen Cave, and his topic was death, right? Cave is an atheist. He's not a Christian, and this is how he introduces his, his topic. He says... We have to live in the knowledge that the worst thing that can possibly happen one day surely will. The end of all of our projects, all of our hopes, all of our dreams, uh, the end of our individual world, we each live in the shadow of a personal apocalypse. And that's frightening. It's terrifying. Right? Cave refers to how each person has to deal with, with the reality of death, and he refers to this as terror management theory. And he says that we all kind of have to create some sort of story that we tell ourselves to cope with our impending death, right? There, There are four major categories, he says, that people use to kind of cope with and deal with death. The first is kind of an immortality story, right? It's like, you know, the fountain of youth, right? cultures have these stories. Like, if you found this thing, you could be immortal. We do it today with science, right? If I can just live a little bit longer, right? I kept thinking, you know, I can just make it to 30 or 40. They'll have cured baldness. But they haven't yet still, um, so I'm still going to go bald, I think, unfortunately. But the point is, we we think, like, science, can they'll prolong our life. We can be immortal um, through science, right? The second story we tell ourselves is that um, the belief that our soul will leave the body and then live on kind of eternally somewhere, right? That's what a lot of religion teach right the immortality of the soul right the third attempt that we try to justify and you know kind of avoid the fear of death is we, we attempt to live forever through our legacy right our, our family or, or our work or what we accomplish but we all recognize that that one doesn't help at all right the the actor/ director Willie Allen once said I don't want to achieve immortality through my work. I want to achieve immortality through not dying, right? That's, that's, that's pretty good. That's, that's honest, right? That's what we all want, right? But it is the fourth story that Cave gives, the fourth story that we tell ourselves to, to cope with the reality of death that interests us this morning. And that first, fourth story is resurrection, right? We will all die, right? But there is hope, right? Because not just our souls, but our bodies will come back to life as well. Right? And, and that is the issue with which the Sadducees confront Jesus, resurrection. Right? The Greek word is anastasia, which literally means to stand up again or to rise again. Right? The Christian doctrine of resurrection holds that we consist of body and soul. Right? When our body dies, our soul lives on for some period of time um, with God. But that's that's not that's not heaven. That's not the goal. That's not the end state. The point is that we are waiting for the end when God brings the bodies back to life, reunites body and soul. Right. So in Christianity, the promise is not just for for life after death, but bodily life after death. Right. In the new heavens and the new earth. And it is concerning that doctrine that the Sadducees confront Jesus. Right. So we're going to look briefly at their ridiculous argument. And then we're going to look at the two reasons Jesus gives to them why they do not believe. And we'll finish up by looking at the necessity of of resurrection to Christianity and, I think, to all of life itself. I don't think life works without um, resurrection. So so go ahead and look down at your copy of the Word um, in Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 18. You can follow along as I read. This is God's Word. And Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection... And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for, her brother, for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Right? Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? wrong. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, Um, we thank you for this this beautiful day and this opportunity to worship, um, to fellowship, um, Father, and to be encouraged and refreshed by your word. Father, it does not matter how well or poorly I preach this sermon, Father, unless um, your spirit um, works and takes these truths and applies them to our heart. So, Father, we ask um, for your presence here with us. Father, focus us on on your word. Um, Father, bring it to life. Um, Use it. Um, mightily in our personal lives and in the life of, of the church. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Right. so, the Sadducees are up. Right? This is kind of like a wrestling match. Right. If Jesus defeats one guy, they, they tap out, another guy taps in, uh, they come after Jesus, they get you know, just as soundly um, defeated as well. And this is actually the only place in the whole book of Mark that the Sadducees are mentioned at all. But, but we know from elsewhere that they, they did not get along with the Pharisees. The the two groups could not have been more different. You've got the religious conservatives versus the religious liberals. And a lot of this still applies today. The Pharisees strongly emphasized the sovereignty of God, while the Sadducees were all about um, human free will alone. The Pharisees believed in the supernatural, including miracles and angels and demons. The Sadducees didn't believe in any of that the Pharisees accepted the entirety of the Hebrew Scriptures, right? You have the Torah, you have the historical books, you have the wisdom literature, and the prophets, right? That's our Old Testament. Well, the Sadducees held to only the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, right? They thought that that was only God's inspired, authoritative word. And as our story emphasizes, the Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead, while the Sadducees were adamantly against it. So, the why do the Sadducees, who are known for their denial of the resurrection, why do they come to Jesus with a question about resurrection? Well, this demonstrates what we've seen with every one of these questions that these guys bring to Jesus. Well, they're not actually looking for answers. Right? They don't actually want to learn anything. They're, they're trying to trap and discredit Jesus. But, but the approach of the Sadducees is a little bit different here. They are simply trying to ridicule Jesus and to make Jesus look stupid. In front of everyone else. Notice their question, right? They very good. Uh, they could have easily just asked, "Well, that was a woman. Her husband died, and she got remarried. Well, which one would she be married to in heaven?" Right? That's a reasonable question. That's not that crazy. But they don't do that, right? They they go through seven different men. She got married again. She got married again. She got married again. Well, they're just piling up for the purpose of just kind of getting to making this look as ridiculous as possible. They're they're trying to make Jesus look dumb. This is referred to as a reductio ad absurdum, which just means a reduction to absurdity. That's an argument that attempts to refute a position by showing that it leads to just a ridiculous conclusion. Skeptics love to do this today. There's another resurrection kind of argument like this I've heard before. Have you ever heard this one? They're like, well, you know, say a man dies, right, he decays, well, the worm eats the guy, well, then the chicken eats the worm, well, then you eat the chicken, well, now you've got part of that guy in you, well, then at the resurrection, what happens? Who gets what part, right? Well, it's just a stupid argument, right? It's just dumb, right? They're not actually trying to learn something. They're just trying to raise up walls and kind of avoid um, actually dealing with anything. Right? If you talk to non-believers ever in your life, and, and I hope that you do, we all should, you'll, you'll encounter this a lot. Right? Such, such an argument generally demonstrates just a complete lack of desire to actually consider Jesus. Right? You'll be in the middle of very successfully answering one objection, and without even letting you finish, they will jump to some other completely unrelated question. Well, who was Cain's wife? Or well, what about Lucy and Caveman? What do we do with that? Right? Well, again, when people do that, they're not actually trying to learn anything. Right? They're, they're, they're just demonstrating that they don't actually care. They're using these questions as smoke screens to avoid having to confront the real issues. Right? Don't be that guy, right? Don't, don't do this, right? Don't, don't allow yourself to hide behind silly little secondary arguments to avoid dealing with the big issues, like the person of Jesus Christ, like the resurrection. If you tackle those big things first, I promise you that all that kind of other small secondary stuff will eventually fall into place, right? But all that is beside the point, right? These guys are trying to make Jesus look ridiculous because of what he believes, Right, have you ever experienced this? Right? It's, just, it's not fun. I, I, I've been there. But, but thankfully, Jesus can obviously handle these situations much better than we do. And by the way, it's not too important to the main point, but what they're talking about here is referred to as leverate marriage. Right? Levere in Latin just means brother in law. Right? And this comes from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 and 6. Moses writes, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. Now, this seems like a really strange law to us, right? And it, and it is. But, but it was actually a very progressive law back then. and It was actually designed for the purpose of protecting women. Right. It was a very bad time and a very unsafe time for women to be single and for women to be widows. This law served the purpose of making sure that the woman was taken care of immediately. Right? So, so that she, someone had to come in and provide for her and care for her so that the inheritance and the land all stayed in the family and she didn't lose everything. Right? So it's actually a progressive law compared to everything that was going on around, on around Israel at the time. But, but again, don't get caught up. On these kind of secondary issues. That's, that's not the point of the stories. Right? The, the Sadducees think the idea of resurrection is ridiculous, so they try and make Jesus look stupid in front of the people. Right? That, that's kind of what is going on here. In verse 24, Jesus responds to them. Right? He gives them two reasons why they are wrong. You neither know the scriptures nor the power, you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. And I think you can make the case that these two reasons are behind all of our theological error and all of our sins to some degree. Right? Theological error happens when we do not know the Scriptures. And we give in to temptation and sin when we do not know the Scriptures and we do not understand the power of God. Let's start with their, and then our, failure to know the Scriptures. Right? Part of the problem is that the Sadducees just flat out reject 75% of the Old Testament. Again, remember, they think that just the first five books are, are part of their Bible. That's their whole Bible, those first five books of, of Moses, right? But are we really that different than them? Think about it. We, we would never say out loud that only parts of the Old Testament are important. But many Christians today functionally live as if only part of the Old Testament matters, right? When was the last time that you read the book of Malachi or something, right? When was the, What do you know about the book of Obadiah? Or think about this. This drives me crazy, right? We, we go out in the streets, we hand out to non-Christians, right, to people without the written revelation of God, and we hand them not a Bible, but we hand them a New Testament with Psalms and Proverbs tacked on to the end, right? Good grief, right? What kind of message does that send, right? Well, the New Testament's really important. These two Old Testament books, are kind of important. We'll, we'll throw them on at the end. But those other 37 books of the Old Testament, nah, don't worry about those, right? No, those, those aren't important at all. Over half the Bible, right? No, right? That, that's, that's terrible. When we do that, we are, in effect, doing the same thing that the Sadducees are doing. Let's not hand out New Testaments, right? It just gives a wrong and unbiblical message, right? Let's spend the extra 50 cents and invest in whole Bibles, On WestminsterBooks.com, an outreach New Testament is a dollar, and the whole Bible is a dollar fifty. Right? Let's go the extra mile and spend the extra fifty cents. And in fact, I would encourage every one of us to always have a couple little kind of extra Bibles handy in your bag or kind of whatever you carry as you go to work or go to school. Right. Each of these last two weeks, we've been able to give someone here, right, the word of God for the very first time right, and send them home with it. Right. That's a very exciting thing. If you have a couple copies with you at all times, you can always be ready to hand one to someone um, if they ask. Right. I, it's so valuable to give to people the word of God. Right. There's just nothing better that you can hand to someone. In fact, we just ordered um, a new case of kind of these these you know very cheap. Um, Bibles, And if you're interested, and if you will promise to give them to someone, I'll give you a couple, right? Come find me, throw them in your bag, and then sometime at work, at some point in time, someone will come up with someone and you can say, Here, here's a Bible. Read the book of John, right? That's, that's one of the best things that you can do evangelistically, right? So, again, kind of a tangent, but those New Testaments, they, they bother me. But, again, this isn't the only way that we are like the Sadducees concerning God's Word, right? We've been talking about this in Sunday school. We are working through the books of the Hebrew Testament, of the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, because um, there's just a general neglect of all things Old Testament in um, the American church. And part of the reason for that is that the American church has largely been in the grip of a theology for the last hundred years that teaches that there is a very sharp divide between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Well, the Old Testament is for Israel, the New Testament is for the church. The Old Testament is law, the New Testament is grace, right? And hearing this taught for so long, people have started to listen, and they've just kind of given up and completely ignored their Old Testament. Whoa, what does that have to do with me, right? That's, that's law, right? I've got grace. I've got the New Testament wrong, right? It, the Old Testament has everything to do with you, and it very much applies to you today. You cannot understand the New Testament, right? You cannot properly understand Jesus without some sort of understanding of the Old Testament, Alright? There are not Two separate people of God and two separate plans for those people. Here's the Old Testament plan for them or the New Testament plan for them. No, Paul writes in Galatians 3, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Listen, who is Abraham's offspring? It's Israel. Right? And and Paul here says, if you are Christ, you are Abraham's offspring. Right? We are part of true Israel. We are all Jew and Gentile together, one in Christ Jesus. Right? So the Old Testament still very much has relevance for us today. Right? So we cannot continue to neglect over two-thirds of God's revelation. We've got to know our Old Testament so that we do not do the same thing that the Sadducees are doing here. Do you know the Scriptures? Or are you like the Sadducees? Tell me, is, is Sunday morning the only time of the week that you open up God's Word? Right? A, a Christian just cannot survive like that. Right? My, my challenge to all of us this morning is to commit to making an effort in this area. Right, And, and listen, don't do what some people do. It's like, All right, we have to be trying. I need to read the Bible. I'm going to read the whole Bible in, in two weeks, like two hours a day. I'm going to, I'm going to read it all. Good, great. Enthusiasm. I love it. But you're going to fail. All just just start small, right? Sit, sit on the train, on the way to work, take a Bible with you, and commit to reading one chapter a day. Or listen, if if books are just like, wait, books? What do we do with books? You can download it on your phone for free, put it in your headphones, and you can listen to God's word while riding on the train, right? We've got to be in God's word somehow, right, regularly. Right so start small read a chapter a day right start in the book of John and read through Jesus and what we learn about the gospel in that book do it in public if you do it in a train or in a coffee shop i guarantee you at some point in time someone will say hey you know what are you doing there right Free evangelistic opportunity right there. Right? Instead of having to shove something in someone's face, right? you can, you can just have a free discussion with them. I, was, I got to meet someone at the coffee shop a couple weeks ago. He was asking me questions. We were talking about some stuff. The guy sitting at the table next to us said, hey, can I pull up a chair and listen as well? Yep, come on. We're going to keep talking about this stuff, right? We do it in public. People will come to us and ask and say, oh, you know, what is that? Why do you read that? Do you really still read the Bible? Yes, I do. Let me, let me tell you about it. Right. The point is that God works today through His Word. Right? right. God's not just talking to us, telling us what to do. No, He wrote it down in His Word. That's how He works. That's how He speaks to us. Are you reading it? Right. Are you in that Word? Are you Are you accessing the source of God's revelation and God's power? Right. My My challenge to all of us today is to start. Right. Just start small. Read a chapter. But you've got to start somewhere. We've got to know the Scriptures. So we don't do what the Sadducees do here. Right? So that's their first problem. They do not know God's word. And their second problem grows out of that first problem. Right? They do not know the power of God. Well, they don't know the power of God because they neglected the majority of his word. Right? And, it's, and it's in his word that God reveals to us his great power. So likewise, if you continue to ignore the Old Testament, or in the Bible in general, you will have a smaller, limited picture of who God is, right? The, the Sadducees don't know God as fully revealed in the Old Testament, so they do not understand how resurrection could be possible. Similarly, we ignore God's revelation of himself to us, and we try and form our own beliefs and opinions about who he is and what he can and cannot do, I hear people say this all the time. I even hear Christians say this sometimes. Be careful about this, right? They say, well, I could never believe in a God who is like that. But I could never believe in a God who does that, right? Well, be very careful because if he actually does that, right, well, you just, that's trouble, right? And honestly, you know, we don't really care what our own personal opinions are about God and what he can and cannot do, right? I care about what God reveals to us about himself in his word. And the Old Testament is clear that our God possesses unlimited power and sovereignty and control. He is not limited by anything, including us in any way. Job 12 says, I love this passage, with God our wisdom and might, he has counsel and understanding. If he tears down, none can rebuild. If he shuts a man in, none can open. If he withholds the waters, they dry up. If he sends them out, they overwhelm the land. With him our strength And sound wisdom. The the deceived and the deceiver are his. Judges, he makes fools. He leads priests away, stripped and overthrows the mighty. He deprives his speech those who are trusted, and he takes away the discernment of the elders. He makes nations great and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and he leads them away. He takes away understanding from the chiefs of the people of the earth and makes them wander in a pathless waste. Isaiah 46 says that God declares the end from the beginning. Say, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purpose, and I will do it. Right? That is the power of God that the Sadducees and we often misunderstand and limit. He does what he wants. He is God. We are not. If they had understood that, then they would have understood how easy resurrection would be for this God. If we understood that, we could begin to grasp his absolute power, sovereignty, and control, and we would fall down and worship him. And we would become less concerned about our rights and our autonomy and our will and more focused on him and his glory. Understanding it and encountering the amazing power of God necessarily takes our focus off of ourselves and our rights and what we have to do and what we deserve and putting it on him. Right? And listen, that's a good place to be. Less focus on ourselves, more focus on Him. If you're, if you're struggling with anxiety or fear or worry, it, it's because you are not currently understanding the power of God. He is in control of the situation. And He is good. right? He, he, he tells us not to worry. And He assures us in Romans 8 that if we are His then he is able and he is working all things together for our good. Do you believe that? Right? Is your God a God that is powerful enough to guarantee that no matter how bad things look, that he is working and that he is using those things to bring about good for you? Right? So, so those are the two problems that the Sadducees have. Right? Look briefly at the solutions that Jesus gives. First, right? Jesus, he answers their scripture problem by taking them to a passage from Exodus, right, which is a part of the Bible that they did accept. He, he takes them to Exodus chapter 3 when God comes to Moses in the burning bush and says, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Not I was the God of these guys, but I currently am the God of them. Which necessarily implies that though they are dead, right, that they are still in relationship to God in some way. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living, right? So there logically must be a resurrection. There logically must be something else. And secondly, he informs them that they are misunderstood about what the resurrection is, right? They think resurrection is just coming back to life and things being as they were. But resurrection is not just reanimation, right? Resurrection is transformation, right? Look at what Jesus says in verse 25. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. First, notice that he does not say we will be angels in heaven, right? When we die, we do not get wings and become angels, right? That's just, that's unbiblical. He simply says that we will be like angels, and we will be like them in specifically, in in respect to this one issue, right? In the fact that they do not marry, right? So we don't become angels, we don't become like a lot like angels, we're like them in this one specific um, area, and now, listen, if you have an amazing spouse like I do, um, you know, our first tendency sometimes is to get to this verse, right? And it's kind of like, yeah, we get a little disappointed, right? I like being married. Um, I like my spouse. Um, and that's good. I'm, I want you to like your spouses as well. That's, that's a very good thing, right? So we read this, and we're kind of like, bummed. Well, what? You know, what? what's going on here? What's heaven going to be like? What? What is this? Well, actually, the Bible tells us, surprisingly little, about what heaven is going to specifically be like, right? There's just not a lot of details, um, which should be a warning to us, okay? If God doesn't tell us specifics about heaven... Right, if Paul in Second Corinthians, remember he gets to go to heaven, he gets a vision, he comes back, and he says, "Oh, by the way, I can't say anything about this. All right, I'm not allowed to, to talk about it." Right? If God won't tell us, and if Paul won't tell us specifics in the Bible, well, listen, we probably shouldn't listen to the little kid who's telling us about the time that he went to heaven and told us about what it's going to be like. Right? Just, let's let's not listen to that guy. Right? Books about visiting heaven and hell are like a million dollar industry right now. It's really crazy that it seems that. For some reason, all kinds of people started to get visiting heaven around the same period of time over a couple of years, right? Well, it seems kind of like a coincidence or something. No, it seems like some people are making a lot of money um, off, of this, off of this whole thing, right? But the point is simply don't read those books, right? They're, they're all made up. Um, and if you if you take them and actually compare what they say to Scripture, they directly contradict Scripture in, in a lot of cases, right? Well, that's, that's problematic, right? The focus in none of these books is Jesus. The focus in heaven in the Bible is always Jesus, right? Jesus is the point. Jesus is why heaven is so great, right? That, that's kind of left out in all the other books. So stay away from those. If you want to know about heaven, read the Bible. Um, so, but what the Bible does tell us, even though it doesn't give us a lot of specifics, right, it does tell us that heaven is far greater than anything than we can begin to imagine. 1 right? Corinthians 2.9 says, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. And notice that, by the way. No eye has seen it. Right? So either God is lying or some of these people telling us what they've seen or is not telling the truth. Right, It's not God. Right, No eye has seen no, nor ear has heard just how amazing it is what God has prepared um, for us. Right, Heaven is so much greater than we can imagine. Relationship in heaven will be so much greater and so much more intimate than anything here on earth that we will then no longer need marriage. All right, Ephesians 5 tells us that the mystery of marriage is that it is a picture of Christ and the church. He is the bridegroom. We are the bride. We simply cannot begin to comprehend the depth of joy and delight that awaits us in heaven as we are restored to perfect relationship with God. Whatever joy you experience now in your relationships or in your marriage, it is just the tiniest foretaste of what is going to come. Now listen, I don't think that any of that means that you won't Recognize, or you won't know your former spouse, or you won't know that you were married to them um, in heaven. No, we retain our identities. We retain our our memories. Right? All that stuff is still there. I don't know all the answers to your crazy heaven questions. I have crazy heaven questions. But but what I do know is that there is no way that your relationship with your spouse can be worse in heaven. Right? Everything is better in heaven. Right, so your relationship with your current spouse will be better in heaven as well, though it will apparently be slightly different to some degree. Right, So there's nothing to fear. There's nothing to worry. There can be no loss in heaven. Right, Everything's better, so that relationship will be as well. Right, but there is apparently something different about it. Right, so... So those are the two um, reasons that the Sadducees are wrong, right? Those are Jesus' responses. And again, he's once again soundly defeated his, his opponents. Had they just known their Bibles, had they just trusted in the power of God, they would have known that resurrection was very possible and very biblical. But we're not quite done yet. All right? I want to spend the rest of our time to kind of circle back around to talk about the importance of resurrection to Christianity in general, to our faith but not only that, I want to go back to what we talked about at the very beginning, right? The reality of our impending death, and make the case that resurrection is not only central to the Christian faith, but resurrection is absolutely central to all of life, right? To reality itself. Life doesn't logically make sense without resurrection. right right, let's, let's talk first, though, about um, its place in Christianity. Right, there are actually much bigger stakes here than just these guys making Jesus look silly. Right, we've already seen Jesus now predict his resurrection three different times in chapters eight, nine, and ten. He says, "I'm going to be resurrected." He says, "The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise." So, if they can make resurrection look ridiculous enough that it is clearly not possible, well, then they might not only make Jesus's beliefs look silly but they have now proven that he is a liar and that he is a thing, right? If there is no resurrection, then Jesus was wrong, right? And that's no small thing. As we said earlier, present-day mainline liberal Christianity, they, they try to do this, right? They try to remove everything miraculous out of Christianity, right? Well, if we, if we take out all the miraculous then we can make it more appealing to, to the modern mind, right? And people will really appreciate it and, and come and start to believe. But listen, If you take away resurrection or or the miraculous from Christianity, you don't get some variation of Christianity. You get something that is completely unchristian. You get something that is completely different. Like the Sadducees, many churches today, they try and redefine resurrection. They try and say, oh, it's just a a spiritual thing. This was was just a metaphor of what was going on in, in the apostles' parts. Jesus didn't actually literally and physically come back from the dead. But what does Paul himself say about this idea, right? First Corinthians 15:16. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. He goes on to say that if there is no resurrection, then we, us, Christians, are, are to be pitied more than anyone else who has ever lived. He says if there is no resurrection, then our preaching is in vain. What I am doing right now is in vain. My whole life, my education, my career is completely pointless if there is no resurrection. Right? Paul is very clear in 1 Corinthians 15 that if there is no resurrection, there is no Christianity. In Acts 1.22, the apostles define their jobs as being witnesses to the resurrection. It was the central message of the early church. If there is no resurrection, there is nothing. Right? So this is a hugely important question that the Sadducees are asking. Christianity rises and falls with the resurrection. If it's happened, it's all true. If it didn't happen, Christianity is a farce and it's completely worthless and we are all wasting our time. In one writer, he puts it like this in one of his books. He says, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. If Jesus rose from the dead, that changes everything, right? It means that everything he said was true and that you have to listen to him. So examine the resurrection. I bet that you'll find it quite compelling, right? The the evidence, which we don't have time to get into, very strongly points to the fact that Jesus physically walked out of a tomb 2,000 years ago, vindicating everything that he said and demonstrating that he was who he claimed to be. God himself come to rescue his people. You've got to do something with the resurrection, right? You can't just say, oh, I just don't believe it. That's, I, I, that's impossible. Listen, that's just lazy, right? That's not, you're not being enlightened or reasonable or smart. You're just being lazy, right? You've got to do something with the historical facts of the resurrection. You've got to do something with the empty tomb. You've got to do something with the change of the apostles from cowards to like world-conquering martyrs. You've got to do something with the explosive growth of the church. None of that makes sense without the resurrection of Jesus. So no resurrection, no Christianity. But I want to make the case even more that that not only does our faith not make any sense without the resurrection, but that life itself makes no sense without resurrection. We all recognize how scary the prospect of death is. If you don't recognize it, you're just, you're not being honest. Even non-Christians can admit it. Another atheist guy that I was reading says, Death as the annihilation of oneself with no hope for subsequent life is an emotionally devastating reality. But it is not only an emotionally devastating reality. I think it is a practically devastating reality as well. Because death is the great meaning eraser. Right? Without resurrection, if this, if this life is all that there is, then there can be no real meaning or value in this life. Death extinguishes meaning, right? This is a dirty little secret of atheism, right? Atheists used to understand that the logical conclusion of atheism is nihilism, right? And that word just means nothing in Latin, right? Nihilism believes that there is no ultimate meaning, there is no ultimate value, there is no ultimate purpose to life. But deep down, we all know that that isn't true, right? We all feel that our lives do have meaning, and then they do have value, and they do, but if this world is all that there is, right, if we're all going to die, and that's it, then there is no hope for any sort of meaning or value. I've used this, this Leo Tolstoy quote before, but it's so good that I'll keep using it, so you'll get, you'll get tired of it. But he was a very wealthy and a very successful Russian author. This guy had everything, right, but he had this major midlife crisis, and he wrote about it in his autobiography. And he writes this, he says, My question, that which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide, was the simplest of questions, lying in the soul of every man, a question without an answer to which we cannot live. It was, what will come of what I am doing today or tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Why should I live? Why should I wish for anything or do anything? What purpose is there? It can be expressed thus. Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy. And there isn't, unless there is something after this life. There there can be no real meaning or purpose to this life unless there is resurrection. And I think that the doctrine of resurrection is, is the logical conclusion to what we all know and feel deep down. We all desperately long for and want resurrection to be a reality. Listen, I was I was a nerd when I was a kid, right? I really liked comic books. Right? I loved reading comic books. The superhero stories, I just loved them, right? But if you go read through those, every single hero at some point in time dies and comes back to life, right? Every great story, we you have a death and then a return, right? Because we are so, it is so kind of. Birth- our being, right? To our our very core, this this reality of of resurrection is one of our deepest longings, that it it comes out in in the myths and the literature that even non-Christians produce, because we so want it to be true, and we so need it to be true, right? There is so much more to come than just the 70 or 80 years that you have here. And if that is true, that should fundamentally alter how you live. Right? The words of Jesus in John 5.29 should be very sobering to us. An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Right? The question is not if there is a resurrection, right? Jesus is clear that there is. The question is, which resurrection are you going to experience? The one to eternal life or the one to eternal death? To blessing or to damnation? To joy or to misery? But listen, don't let that verse confuse you, right? Jesus is not saying, if you do good works, you will earn your way into heaven, right? Like, as if what we do is the basis for our salvation. But again, I've been trying to make this clear, right? What our works are not the basis of our salvation, are not why we're saved, but they are the evidence of our salvation. Right? Those who obey God and follow Jesus demonstrate that they have been saved by His grace through their lives, through what they do. So they will receive eternal life. Good works will follow from their salvation, and they will be saved. Okay. So not because of what they've done, but because of what Jesus has done for them. Right? The good news this morning is not just that Jesus is here in this passage announcing the resurrection, but that Jesus Christ himself is the resurrection. Right? John 11.25, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And that changes everything. Right? All that stuff that we talked about at the beginning. Right? The, the terror of the fact that we're all going to die. Jesus kills it. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? It is gone. Our great enemy has been defeated. The the dark specter that looms over our entire lives has been neutralized. Death is no longer something that we fear because we know now that through death we are ushered in to the presence of God. Right? The, the one thing that plagues and, and torments all of, our, all of humanity, the one thing that we should all fear, loses all its power. This is what Jesus Christ has done for us. Right? The gospel is not that if we are good enough, we will be saved. The gospel is not about us at all. The gospel is about God and what God has done for us through Jesus Christ to save us from this impending eternal death. Though none of us deserve it to be saved from it. The good news is that Jesus has done for you what you could never do for yourself. He has rescued you from death. And he has done so by submitting himself to death and then rising again, defeating death itself. I love that line in the new song that we just learned. Trampling over death by death. It's just an an amazing reality victory through defeat Christ kills death by submitting to death it is death by death it is then life by death right Christ has defeated our great enemy Christ has defeated death resurrection is a reality Christ has risen from the dead let's let's close in a word of prayer father we thank you for this season um, where we get to especially focus on a worship and praise you um, for the resurrection. Father, the death of Christ doesn't make any sense um, without the resurrection. Father, forgive us for often uh, neglecting and forgetting um, the second half of the equation. Father, we thank you that not only did Jesus come and live and die for us, Father, but that he lived again. um, Father, that it was through that that you defeated sin and death, that you were able to free us um, from from its clutches, Father, and that you were able to spare us from eternal death, Father, through the death of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you um, so much uh, for this truth. Father, we all feel deep down that there's something more. We all know. Father, we all long for it. And that something more is is perfect relationship with you um, for eternity through Jesus Christ. Father, show us how everything in this world pales in comparison um, to to relationship with you. Father, forgive us when we are like the Sadducees. Father, when we um, neglect your word. Father, when we fail to to study it and to know it and and to cherish it like we should. Forgive us when we doubt your power and we try to limit you and put you in a box. Father, I pray that you would reveal to us how great and glorious and powerful you are, um, Father, and just how loving and merciful you are as well. Father, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Father, freeing us from death. Father, defeating our enemy for us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.